The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. The latest developments in the Middle East. Houthi militants in Yemen have fired missiles once again at an American-owned commercial vessel. And we get the latest from Bloomberg's Rosalind Matheson. Most of these attacks have not done significant damage. Some of them actually have hit ships but not prevented them continuing their journey. But what it really shows is that they're succeeding in continuing to disrupt shipping because if there's any risk at all that some of these things might land, ships are having to take the long way around. And that's not just including things like commodities, oil, oil and gas, but increasingly perishable stuff, fruit and vegetables, livestock. Bloomberg's Roz Matheson says this latest attack comes on the same day President Biden acknowledged that U.S. airstrikes have not halted the Red Sea attacks. Meanwhile, Nathan, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting calls from the U.S. to scale back his military offensive in Gaza or to push for a two-state solution with the Palestinians after the war. Netanyahu spoke through an interpreter at a news conference. In any future arrangement, settlement or no settlement, Israel needs security control over all territory west of Jordan. Prime Minister Netanyahu's comments came a day after Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Israel will never have genuine security without a path toward Palestinian independence. Now back here in the U.S., Karen, Congress has done it again, passing a temporary spending bill to avoid a partial government shutdown this weekend. Details from Bloomberg's Amy Morris in Washington. The measure will finance some federal agencies through March 1st and others through March 8th. House Speaker Mike Johnson squashed a last-minute effort by members of the House Freedom Caucus to stymie the legislation by tacking on immigration policy demands. Some GOP hardliners are angry that the Speaker went back on his promise to not allow any more stopgap funding measures. The White House says President Biden will sign the continuing resolution but urges Congress to settle on long-term funding to keep the government open. In Washington, Amy Morris, Bloomberg Radio. All right, Amy, thanks. Well, lawmakers passed that spending bill just in time for another winter storm to head toward the East Coast. It's on its way now, and we get the very latest from Bloomberg meteorologist Rob Carolyn. Rob. Karen and Nathan, today's storm is going to bring a light to moderate snowfall from the district in Baltimore all the way to Boston. Looks like the district in Baltimore pick up the most. They'll see one to three inches today. It'll taper off during the evening hours between 5 and 7 p.m. in the district in Baltimore, so it certainly affects the commute. New York City will see the snow ending same time period, 5 to 7 p.m. New York City sees about an inch or two. It's less in the Hudson River Valley. It also is less in southern Connecticut. Could see three inches south of the city as the storm system uh, passes through the region today. Boston being further north doesn't see the type of snow that the city gets or that we see in the district in Baltimore. Snow will arrive late in the day in the Boston area. Less than an inch of accumulation in Boston, one to three inches for the South Shore. And in the Boston area, the snow's all done by 10 p.m. And that's Bloomberg meteorologist Rob Carolyn. We'll be checking in with Rob throughout the morning with weather updates. Okay, Karen, let's turn back to the markets, get an update there. The Nasdaq enters this last day of the trading week in record territory, despite data underscoring labor market strength and signs that the Fed could delay rate cuts. We talked about the economy and the markets with Blackstone Chairman Steve Schwartzman. The economy is uh, uh, slowing uh, a bit. 
uh, that's normal with high interest rates. So, so the, on the other side of the ledger, the expectation that interest rates are going down is, is creating animal spirits again. Bikestone Steve Schwartzman spoke with Bloomberg from the World Economic Forum in Davos and said the timing on rate cuts from the Fed is not clear. Well, Nathan, as for commercial banks, U.S. regulators are getting ready to require them to tap the Fed's discount window at least once a year. And we get the latest from Bloomberg's John Tucker. John. And Karen, a bank taps into the Fed's discount window to borrow money in a pinch, but it's been something of a badge of shame. The new requirement is an attempt to reduce that stigma. Uh, This comes after the regional bank crisis last year. Fed officials found that some of the lenders weren't even set up operationally to quickly borrow from the window, even when they needed it. Well, the acting controller of the currency says the changes regulators will propose aim to ensure banks are more prepared to respond to sudden flights of deposits. He says it's uh, almost like doing a fire drill. If it's required when a real liquidity fire comes, then the banks can do it in real life. I'm John Tucker, Bloomberg Radio. Well, John, one bank's given quite the payday to Jamie Dimon. J.P. Morgan Chase raised the CEO's pay to $36 million in 2023. That's up 4.2% from the year before. That boost came in a year in which J.P. Morgan Chase notched the biggest profit in the history of American banking. Nathan, it's a big day for the future of Apple. As of this morning, the tech giant is taking pre-orders for its long-awaited Vision Pro headset. This will be the first real taste of consumer demand for the $3,499 device. It arrives in stores February 2nd. All right, Nathan, thanks. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making news around the world. And for that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Amy Morris. Amy, good morning. Good morning, Karen. President Biden is forgiving nearly $5 billion in additional student debt as the administration seeks to deliver on one of his signature initiatives. Almost 74,000 student loan borrowers will see debt canceled as a result of administrative changes by the Education Department in the latest round of relief. Now, those affected include borrowers enrolled in the government's income-driven repayment, and public service loan forgiveness programs. Each program requires at least a decade of payment or service to be eligible for relief. Thousands of pro-life activists are in the nation's capital today for the 2024 March for Life. Linda Bell is president of the Florida Right to Life, and she says she expects thousands of people to speak out this weekend. You know, it's amazing how many people um, at their own expense, you know, uh, take planes, stay in hotels. I mean, there's been... Um, upwards of 100,000 people in these marches. This is the second march since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Hunter Biden has agreed to appear before House Republicans for a private deposition next month. The move ends months of defiance from the president's son. He had insisted on testifying publicly. The House Oversight Committee says the younger Biden will sit for a deposition on February 28th. Committee Chair James Comer. We've done this the right way. We are in a position to win in court. If we weren't, he wouldn't be coming in to do this deposition. We have done everything the right way. We've been transparent. We've followed the law. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, says his client's cooperation is dependent on the committee issuing a new subpoena, which they will now do given the updated deposition date. A new poll shows just over half of Americans were thriving in 2023. A Gallup survey finds that more than 52 percent of Americans evaluated their lives positively enough last year to be thriving. That's according to the poll, and that's a decline from previous years, where between 52 and 55 percent of Americans were shown to be thriving. The only years the amount of thriving Americans were lower 
was during the Great Recession between 2008 and in 2020 during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Global News, 24 hours a day and whenever you want it with Bloomberg News Now. I'm Amy Morris and this is Bloomberg. Karen. All right, Amy, thank you. And we do bring you news throughout the day right here on Bloomberg Radio. But now you can get the latest news on demand. That means whenever you want it, subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Time now for the Bloomberg Sports Update. Here's John Stashauer. John. Karen, indications the Atlanta Falcons are serious about trying to hire Bill Belichick as their new coach. They interviewed him earlier this week. They just had him in for a second interview. NFL division playoffs begin tomorrow. The first game is Houston at Baltimore. The Texans have been a huge surprise this season with 11 wins. That's as many games as they won in the previous three seasons combined. But they're a nine-point underdog. The Ravens have outscored the opposition this season by more than 200 points. The Packers tomorrow go to San Francisco. It's the fifth time the two teams have met in the playoffs in the last 11 years. On Sunday, Tampa Bay at Detroit. Lions just won a playoff game. Can they win two in the same year? That hasn't happened since 1957. And then it's Kansas City at Buffalo. The Bills' six-game winning streak began with a win over the Chiefs. Hockey, the Capitals and Bruins both won by the same score of 5-2. to two. Both teams got hat-tricks in victories. T.J. Oshie for the Caps and the win over St. Louis. David Pasternak for the Bruins in a home win over Colorado. At the Australian Open, American Taylor Fritz won his match in four sets. He's into the fourth round. The fourth seed, Yannick Seeder, lost only four games in advancing. Coco Goff won her match 6-love, six 6-2. Six she won the U.S. Open in a final over Arena Sabalenka. Sabalenka won her match 6-love, six 6-love. Six Warriors game tonight against Dallas postponed. Second game in a row that a game has been postponed because of the death of Golden State assistant coach Dijon Milosevic. Just Dash Hour Bloomberg Sports. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager on a morning where Red Sea shipping remains under threat from Houthi militants in Yemen. The Iran-backed group fired missiles yesterday at another U.S.-owned vessel for the third time in as many days. And it came on the same day that President Biden admitted that U.S. and U.K.-led airstrikes against that militant group have not deterred the attacks. So let's get more now. We're joined by Bloomberg's news director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, Rosalind Matheson. And Roz, it does appear that deterrence is proving very difficult in the Red Sea. What is the latest? 
Well, that's right. Basically, what you have from the US is an acknowledgement of reality, and that is that despite a series of airstrikes from the US and, in some cases, the UK on Houthi targets inside Yemen, they haven't really degraded the Houthis to the point that they're going to stop attacking or trying to attack ships in the Red Sea. And, of course, the Houthis have been at this game for many, many years. They've dealt with aerial bombardments from Saudi Arabia for a long time, and their stuff is quite mobile, and they're very astute at hiding it and moving it around. So it's always going to be difficult. Um, but what we've got is really an acknowledgement from the US president that they haven't managed to achieve very much, despite um, quite a few serious strikes on their targets inside Yemen. We've seen yet another attempt to attack a ship in the Red Sea. Uh, we're seeing shipping still having to divert a long way around. And that's not just oil and gas, but that's also increasingly produce, fruit and vegetables, livestock, things that don't do very well on very long trips on ships um, and can end up degrading as a result. And it just points again to the, to the, to the reality. The US is kind of boxed in on, on two fronts. One is what to do about the Houthis and secondly, what to do with Israel and the war in Gaza. Now that box gets even tighter when we've just heard once again from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday that he's going to keep up his war against Hamas until it's completely destroyed and he's rejecting the idea of a two-state solution after the war is over. And that's right. And that's the issue, really, fundamentally a disagreement about what the future might look like for Gaza. And if Israel is insisting that cannot be a two-state solution and the starting point for the US and, and countries in the region is that you have to have a two-state solution to have a proper resolution of this issue in the longer term. So they can't agree on that. They won't be able to agree then on who's going to rule or manage Gaza in the aftermath of this conflict. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is now saying, it can be a civil authority, um, but it has to be the one that he's um, comfortable with. And so there's a lot of obstacles in the way here to getting some kind of resolution to that conflict. And, and despite all the U.S. trips to the region, despite the U.S. pressure, and we're really talking about the biggest ally for Israel on the planet militarily and, and economically to some extent, that Benjamin Netanyahu is just not paying any heed to that. He's saying, I need to do what I need to do for Israel. And you're seeing that hardening in general in in Israel now, um, publicly also, not just with the with the politicians, but a sense that they feel that this war has to has to play out. So, in our last minute, Roz, what can we foresee that could get the U.S. out of this box? Well, it's very difficult to, to see what that is. I mean, in reality, the thing that will probably um, wind a lot of it for the US is for the conflict in Gaza uh, to wind down, uh, for, for Israel to, to slow down the fighting there, uh, to accept some kind of conversation around a solution for Gaza, because that might then slow the Houthi attacks, for example, on ships in the Red Sea. It might stop Hezbollah um, and their aerial attacks from Lebanon. So things might sort of slowly unwind in all those directions. But that's really dependent on the on the conflict in Gaza slowing down. Okay, Rosalind Mathis and our EMEA news director for Bloomberg News. Ros, thank you as always. Now we want to take you to Davos for a conversation with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan from the World Economic Forum. He says four interest rate cuts could be coming from the Federal Reserve in 2024 and 2025. He also says proposed regulatory changes that would require an increase in capital at major U.S. banks need to be altered. Brian Moynihan sat down with Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz for an extended conversation from the World Economic Forum in Davos.
Let's talk about this economy and the consumer. You are the number one small business lender in the country. You've got a massive retail business. What are you seeing right now versus where we were, say, 12 months ago? So we got 66 million consumers, and we track every week sort of how they move money in and out of their accounts, the so credit debit card spending, checks written, cash out of the ATM, Zelle payments and everything. And, and so over the last 12 months, they've gone from a year-over-year -year growth rate in the first part of 23 versus 22 of 10% down to year-over-year -year growth rate now four to half, five percent in December, in the first part of January. Pretty consistent since the midsummer. Now, that's good news and bad news. The good news is it's slowed down because it's more consistent where it was 16, 17, 18, sort of a low inflation, lower growth economy, meaning the drag effect is starting to tame their behavior, which helps fuel inflation. Uh, the bad news is as they're slowing down, you know, our core prediction by our research team, which is the best in the world, is we go from almost a four and a half, whatever it was in the third quarter growth rate, to a one percent positive soft landing, but still a quick slowdown. Mike who leads that team on the economic side of things, looking for that early rate cut from the yeah. Federal Reserve in, in, say, March. Based on what you are seeing, do you think that's necessary, that the Federal Reserve would need to be doing that as early as March? Well, you've seen the market play out here, a pretty good swing on that debate. But Getting squeezed. You know, our, our core team has four cuts and four cuts, 24 and 25. And so if you sort of sort that through, people wouldn't interpret that, but that is actually higher for longer because you came off of 25 basis points, and if you end up at three and a half next, you know, next year, eight quarters away from now. Um, so I think the team, Mike and the team, they're basically are saying they're going to have to start cutting because they have the space to cut and the economy can keep growing. And the last thing you want to do is tip this thing over. And so the consumer's spending in good shape. Their credit's in pretty good shape. The credit statistics, everybody's all, it's normalizing. It's normalizing at 19 and 18. Those are like 50 year good records in our company. It's, it's not normalizing to a stress. It's normalizing the you know, base case. So if you think about that, they've got access to credit. Inflation hurts, especially median income. That's tough on people. That's what you read about. But in the end of the day, they've got it set up so they have to start cutting lest the drag gets too strong. And the housing market's got to get a little more oomph to it. Uh, you've got to get a car purchases up. You've got to get these things that kind of keep the economy rolling on. Just on that housing point, how much do rates have to drop before you really see the mortgage market come back? Well, I think there'll be two parts to that equation. Um, if you got a, all, all the people in the consumer say, if you get a six handle consistently, or even you know, high fives, low sixes, then people sort of get, you just need time too. And so when, when I got my first mortgage, eight and a half, I thought I had a deal. You know, it's, I, I first went into business and the prime rate was 23. And so, but I was, everybody's used to that. People aren't used to it. So it's going to just take time for them to think about it differently and get used to the pricing's got to uh, you know, flatten out and adjust. Their, their wages have to come up. Um, but the good news is, you know, most Americans have a fixed rate mortgage, which in an inverse sort of is, a, is an asset right now to have a, against the market. And so it's going to be slow in the first part of next year. It should start picking up as people get more and more used to this. And frankly, there's just a turnover in housing because people uh, get divorced, get sick, you die, move to a bigger house. Uh, those so are very cheerful. pleasant things. But, exactly. but, the, but the reality is that's what happens. That's what we need to unlock the housing market. Okay. So, so there's always an activity. It's just that the refinance activity is mortgage driven, but that's, that's done for a while. But the, the purchase activity will pick up because people have kids and want houses and things like that. I'm curious, you know, in your in your earnings call, you expressed some cautiousness yeah. around your outlook. Yeah. Other CEOs of certain financial firms have been less so, particularly yeah. at this Davos meeting. Talk about hiring, talking about the yeah. incredible boom in M&A, IPOs, everything yeah. coming back. How do you explain the difference? Well, we're cautious because the economy is slowing down, and that's just how you have to manage expenses. You know, we, we have a big enterprise. We, over the course of last year, probably went down four or 5,000 headcount. We still hired 15,000 people last year. 
So we are always hiring. People hire 1,000 to 1,500 people a month. And with a turnover rate, which has actually gone down to 6% now, probably the lowest we've ever had in reasonably normal times in the company's history that we can find, you don't have to hire as many as you did in the Great Resignation. So we, we look three years out for headcount. We plan into it. But it's how you keep the expense. At the end of the day, our expense pays $63 billion. 35, 38, 40 billion is people. And it's, so it's, it's all about managing people and then using AI and technology and applied technologies to take work away and then migrate people to other places we need to work. And so are we hiring commercial bankers? Absolutely. Financial advisors? Absolutely. Uh, middle market investment bankers? We'll probably double that staff in the next couple of years. Are we hiring salespeople in the branches? Yes. But at the same time, the service side of that keeps going more digitized and automated. Even deep in, we had a billion two digital interactions in consumer last quarter. Just think about that. And you still have a lot that isn't. So you can, you're can you always getting a benefit of that. So it's a, it's a balance. Core economy, we think, is solid. Most people think I'm optimistic. I'm just giving you the facts of what our talent team tells us. But you know, at the end of the day, you have to manage expenses because it's NI flattens out and then starts growing. Net interest income, that's 60% of our revenue. So you got to make sure the expenses are in line with it. The next question, Basel III Endgame. Yeah. It sounds like a bad movie. Let's talk about it. Given what's proposed, do you think it will go through as proposed? And let's start with what's proposed. What are the conversations, what do they sound like between you and regulators at the moment? I think there's an openness. You don't have to really take what I say. Just listen to the people who are going to actually have the vote, the people who actually have to approve it, and the difference of opinion, which which is a bit unusual, honestly. I've been doing this stuff around 40 years, and I've never seen the, the, the board itself have uh, out in the open divergence of opinion, and that's because what it affects is so penetrative across the society. Small business lending, you know, mortgages, tax credit equity deals, trading things. So a lot of what you heard after the financial crisis really had about 10 or 12 of us that you know, were making adjustments that and, you know, then another group came behind. This goes deep in the thing. That's what you hear more noise. And of course, they're going to their Congress team uh, people. They're going to the regulators and saying, wait a second, is this what you want to do? And so I think that means there's going to be debate around changing and probably change, but we'll see it play out. And even, you know, even uh, the Fed itself has said that. Do they have to change it? Yes, because I don't think it's the right balance. And that's why the comment letters flooded in uh, Tuesday or whenever it was all over the place. And you know, we've made the points clear. 20% increase in our capital doesn't seem to make sense given where we are. Now, we have $195 billion of regulatory capital. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 99.1 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, 
a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.